NBA Hybrid Podcast brought to you by Jalen Lutze, Kyle Stein, and Michael Kimball. We are here in week 10 of the pandemic season, and I'm going to start us off with a couple of weird statistical lines from last week that caught my attention. Both of them start with the number 50, and both of them end in the same place. Joel Embiid in a 112-105 win over the Bulls had a line of 50 Five zero, seventeen, 17, and 5. And he was the first 76er to do this since 1968, um, which uh, was um, when Will Chamberlain was playing that position for the Sixers. And then the other 50 last week was Jamal Murray putting up 50 points, which he did on 25 shots, 21 for 25 from the floor, 8 for 10 from 3, and he did it on no free throws. It was the most ever points scored in a game with no free throws, 50. Hakeem did it with 48, as did Kareem, Um, but the only other player to put up 50 or more points with an efficiency of 84% or higher, also Wilt Chamberlain. So there you have it, two 50s we started with. And by a guard? And by a guard, too, right. A, a pretty um, rare, rare feat. Um, helped along a great deal with that 8 for 10 from the, the, the field, which would make his effective field goal percentage, you know, even greater than than Chamberlain's was back then. Um, but just like two really weird sets of statistics. Um, yeah, the one with Murray's is just a super odd thing, especially given that he shoots a fair number of free throws at a very high percentage. He would have been hunting those. Um, as he always does. And then the, the thing that's most interesting about Embiid's line is it points to the a kind of efficiency that we haven't seen in a very long time. We see it with some of Shaq's seasons at his height, um, but he never quite reached this level. So it's interesting to see Embiid doing it at this level with the way the game is played today. So um, sort of a fascinating thing. It, it, it's sort of the, the big man efficiency has reached a new point as big men have evolved their game to match what it is now. So um, yeah, I just thought that was fun stuff. Yeah, I guess I would say that um, I think Zion, I'll look up his stats right now, but I feel like Zion Williamson is the sort of Shaq equivalent, the there new age go. Shaq uh, of our time. You know, he's he has multiple games where he's like 13 of 17 from the field or 14 of 15. I lost field goal percentage one week because he went 14 of 15, I think, against the Kings. <laughs> right. um, like just, well, yeah. you know, I guess I'm losing field goal percentage <laughs> this week. Um, so, I mean, he's yeah, you know, he's ridiculous in that in that regard. Yeah, it's interesting to see. I've been watching, you know, fantasy basketball does this to some extent. We, we end up watching efficiency trends, statistical trends. And one of the others that's caught me, I didn't think of it till we got into this, the two-point shot for a bunch of guys has gotten much better this year. It's almost as if coaches looked at this big statistical hole, the two-pointer from, what was it, eight feet to 15 feet, I think it was, or eight feet to 12 feet being the worst statistical shot. Now we have a bunch of guys doing that with incredible efficiency. So we're seeing that change uh, in some other ways too. And this is all because we know the statistics now, like this stuff was just never known. I don't think everybody realized how inefficient that two pointer was, but it's fascinating to see certain players get much, much better because they're so efficient um, from that spot. So 
Um, I think in Embiid's, I'd have to go back and look now, but I want to say Embiid's two-point percentage in the mid-range is way up this season, too. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think that's driving his efficient offense because, you know, I think other people have talked about this, like Embiid is a big, he's a post-up big, he's not really like a playmaking big a la Bam Adebayo or Nikola Jokic, and therefore there are questions about his ability to come through in the clutch or in the playoff environment. Can you run your playoff offense through him? And I think his counter to that has been shooting the face-up mid-range jumper um, and shooting it super efficiently, right? So right. that's, you know, that's the counter. It's, it's, it's old school in a sense, you know, it's kind of like a new age version of the Jordan fadeaway. It's sort of like, uh, rather than allow the team to come double, double team me with my back turned to them, how about I just face up and can the jumper in your face that you can't really block or contest right. uh, uh, very well. So, yeah, I think that's his answer to it. He's obviously super mobile. He's zero stepping guys in transition. He's, you know, getting into his foul drawing antics on his drives after pump fakes. So he's having a great season and I, the NBA is just, is just a ton of fun more broadly. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I love what you said there. What we're seeing is an old school counter to new school basketball you know, in, in a sense, and like they're going back for those solutions is fascinating to me. And so the, the, the complexity of this keeps ratcheting up in a really kind of fun way, that balance. So, um, all right. The other big thing that happened in the last week in the NBA, Chris Finch hired by the Minnesota Timberwolves away from the Toronto Raptors, where he was assistant coach. I know two things about Chris Finch. I'm going to say both of them, and then we can see where this goes. One is uh, that he is considered a very bright offensive mind, one of the, the brighter offensive minds in the game today. So I'm interested to see what um, of, of how that shows itself in Minnesota. And then the second thing I know is actually not so different um, in the sense that he's very well known for maximizing player talents and getting the most out of individual games, skill sets, that sort of thing. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested to see what, you know, or rather which uh, Minnesota Timberwolves develop out of this. They have a lot of interesting, fun, young players here. I don't know how it's going to fit together. I'm not sure who's going to be starting in two weeks, but uh, I think there are a lot of interesting decisions Chris Finch has to make. Do you guys want to help him with some of these? <laughs> I don't know if uh, I don't know if I want to help him make any of the decisions, but you know, as you said, I think I think there's a lot of things to talk about with the Chris Finch hiring. Obviously, there's a lot of conversation around. Um, the equity or lack of equity in the hiring process, the fact that it wasn't, didn't, didn't yep. seem to be opened up to the broader public, the broader coaching tree um, and list of assistant coaches and how that is going to disproportionately affect uh, black assistant coaches in the league who are looking to move up into head coaching positions. But first and foremost, I just want to say like, I guess I think, I guess this is my point and I'm like, trying to choose my words very carefully here because I don't want to be the dude, the black dude who has like a minuscule platform who's doing contrarian things for the sake of contrarianism. But I guess what I'd say this in the case of Chris Finch, like, you know, he has his coaching bona fide. So he is, he is qualified. I think that's agreed upon across the board. Um, he's coached all across the world. He won a championship in the G league. Um, as you said, he's a respected, um, offensive mind and for his sake he's probably as he said in his interview in the in the piece I think it was the Woj piece he's got his dream job there are only 30 of these jobs he's not going to pass it up uh, when the opportunity arises sure. and I think you know to the point that I mentioned before 
it's it's been weird for me seeing this online and i just kind of feel like i don't know if i need people uh more specifically like the broader like white nba watching public to kind of go up in arms anytime a white uh coach is hired i don't think that's the point i think uh, the nuance there is that people are upset about the process. Um, and those complaints I think are very valid. Yes. Um, because if you don't have a good process and I don't think the NBA has anything like the Rooney rule in the NFL, right. if there's no check on these organizations to like have equitable open processes that make space for uh, diverse candidates, that's going to be a problem and it's going to disproportionately affl- affect black candidates. But yeah, like I think the process was bad. It seems like, and I think um, I was listening to an athletic pod today. I think they said that like basically Gerson Rosas wanted to hire Finch last year uh, Even in 2019. Two years ago. Yeah, two years like, ago. They, they've been tracking this for, yeah, exactly. And probably Glenn, Glenn Taylor said no for whatever reason. You know, Ryan Saunders had the good, had the good vibes. It was a good story. Um, sure. I don't know, maybe he's also maybe not making as much money that could potentially be a part of it. I don't know their contract situation. I'm just saying a very young coach with not a lot of experience that could factor in. Um, So I think, you know, this just seems like a situation where they already knew the coach that they wanted. And that's the reason for them not really having a process that doesn't excuse them. Uh, That doesn't mean that it was a good process. You know, it's sort of an extenuate continuation of like, bad organizations or organizations that are kind of fumbling their process all the way from the top, you know, Glenn Taylor at the top, and then it just continues. And then you get yourself in like a sticky situation and open yourself up to criticism this way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I don't, uh, I just want to say not a contrarian opinion and I absolutely, the process was bad here. I, I think the Nets took um, some of that same criticism. You know, in each case, we have a team that knew the guy they wanted, so to speak, and so didn't go through a reasonable process. Why the NBA doesn't have that when other leagues who do much worse than a lot of other things do have it? Um, I'm not sure about it sure would be nice to see that, you know, and here's a team not going through the process, who knows what any of those candidates who might have come in could have said could have done could have brought to them. You know, that could have been the thing, but they settled on this, you know, and it's an example uh, in some ways of somewhat poor decision making. Um, You you know, this isn't what a textbook on decision making would tell you to do, decide the guy, figure out, you know. Um, Yeah, and and that that organization, I think this is also something they pointed out. It was the... Um, it was the tampering pod with Sam Amick um, and, and others, yeah. Fred Katz um, and someone else, uh, Anthony Slater, who's covering the Warriors. So they, they pointed out that the, the, the Timberwolves have a history of kind of doing things in-house that are sort of like motivated by emotions and the feel-goodness of it from the Ryan Saunders hiring to the idea of pairing Kat and, uh, and D'Angelo Russell together. They're two sure. really good friends. Um, and to the idea of not drafting LaMelo Ball, um, you know, like I think I've heard reports that D'Angelo Russell didn't want to play with Lonzo Ball and he didn't want to play with LaMelo Ball. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, Anthony Edwards right. looks good. He's super athletic. He murdered uh, Yuta Watanabe the other day. Um, you know, he's obviously has a long way to go in terms of shooting, but 
like I said, like we've talked about this before, he's an NBA athlete. His athleticism is off the charts. He's a pretty good passer. Like he has these really nice flash um, passing flashes um, and, you know, the shooting, hopefully you expect it will come along and he'll figure it out. So I'm not saying that it's a bad pick. It just seems like, again, their process was bad and all these sorts of things like, and I mean, it's just, I think it's just bad that they gave uh, D'Angelo Russell a max contract. I don't, I just don't think he's that kind of player. And they certainly like, haven't friendships been not gonna get those guys there no i don't think so <laughs> and like they certainly haven't surrounded him with the kind of players that they need i mean their best their third best player is malik beasley who's sort of an all offense player and you've got like this sort of soft all offense team um and the guys who are good on defense just can't shoot basically um so you can't really play them so yeah i I don't know the timberwolves seem to be in a tough spot and this is the other thing um a part of my contrarian take of like people people are rightly like they want david vanderpool to sort of have had a chance at the job but i'm almost thankful that he doesn't because i mean the the Timberwolves owe a pick to the Warriors and they're the worst team in the league right now. If they're the worst team in the league come late in the season, they're going to, they're going to tank. Like they need to yeah, get, of course. it's top three protected. They need to get the number one pick, keep the pick. And then they'll owe a, a pick later. Like it's, and then if, if Vanderpool, Vanderpool is the coach and he's tanking and losing, no one is going to be like, Oh, your first team tank. They're going to say you have a bad record. Um, and it's going to be, and they're going to use that as an excuse not to sure. give him a job. So like, it's a tough situation, you know, Rosas put Finch in a tough situation with the timing of it all and not making the like hire that they wanted from the beginning. So I don't know, right. hopefully better opportunities come, come around for Vanderpool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to believe he's going to land somewhere good after this, but um, yeah, to see this happen repeatedly to certain candidates is a, not right. Um, uh, uh, I'd like to flip it a little to the um, the idea of Finch as a development coach or offensive coach. Um, looking at what uh, I'm guessing could be the Minnesota Timberwolves starting five, you know, not at all clear, but I'm going to give you a rundown of sort of a standard take on it. D'Angelo Russell, Malik Beasley, Anthony Edwards, Jared Vanderbilt, and then Cat uh, at the five. Probably the starter five, starting five. There are different guys you could mix in here any number of ways. Jaden McDaniels, Jarrett Culver, Jordan McLaughlin, Juan Hernan Gomez. Um, uh, even Layman started here. Okogie started here. Uh, a lot of different pieces that could be moved in and out to make this lineup work. Any thoughts on what Finch might do? Any thoughts on which players might improve in a Finch offense? I mean, I texted this to Kyle, like he was saying, I'm not sure that the move really affects anything. And I, and, you know, for their, their real life record, I probably agree. I I mean, I think they'll play better. I think it seems like the, the conversation online uh, from a lot of people is that uh, Ryan Saunders wasn't necessarily doing a great job of maximizing the players. So maybe they'll win a few more games. Uh, But uh, D'Angelo Russell is out right now with knee surgery. Um, So, you know, they're, they're sort of banged up. They have a bunch of young players. Um, So again, they're, they're climbing an uphill battle there, but I do think that it should be positive for cat. Not only, you know, as he gets healthier, he reorients himself back into playing uh, often playing more minutes, recovering from COVID, but also just like 
I'm pretty sure that uh, Beasley and Russell, I know, uh, I'm pretty sure they have higher usage rates than he does right now, which is just not good. Like, Towns is too good. The, the Everything needs to run through Towns, and maybe he's not that kind of player. D'Angelo Russell has a 29.6 usage rate, so he has a higher usage rate, which you would expect because he's a guard. Towns is at 26. Edwards is at 24.8. Malik, Malik Beasley is at 24.6. So, I don't know. You would maybe want to see that spread out a little. Um, and just just the shots, you know, like they did kind of surround towns with a bunch of chuckers in D'Angelo Russell, Malik Beasley and Anthony sure. Edwards. And maybe they'll grow out of that. But, <laughs> you know, like it just seems like they they put their superstar center with a bunch of guards who like to get shots up. Well, well is there is there something that makes those guys more efficient? Ever. They're going to have to be in a way. I mean, one stat I was just going to point out to what you were saying, Jalen, is when I said that I didn't really think that I was going to see much improvement this year, it was mainly because there are only two teams that have lower um, overall field goal percentage for the season than the Timberwolves. And those are the absolutely tanking Pistons and they're just kind of floundering magic. Um, And it's, it's just, it's pretty rough there. And, you know, for all the reasons that you're saying, and there aren't really adjustments that I can see where they bring other people in and they have effective shooters. Right. Yeah. Like, and this is the stat I was looking for. It's the usage percentage is like pretty fine. You know, whatever guards are going to have higher usage percentages, but D'Angelo Russell, 20.1 field goal attempts per 36, Malik Beasley, 18.1, Anthony Edwards, 17.8. I mean, this one doesn't count Jalen Noel because he's like barely played. And then Towns is at 16.7. So that just can't be the case. Like Towns should not be taking fewer shots a game than Anthony Edwards. Like and he's <laughs> he's missed a lot of games or whatever, but like he's too good. He's just too yeah. good. He has to be the center of everything they do. Who's going to start at the four for fantasy purposes? Help somebody out there get a jump on who will I get mean, the d- four. I mean, don't you don't people want it to be Jaden McDaniels? I mean, those, those three three pointers and blocks are really tantalizing, especially those blocks. He he might've jumped Vanderbilt in, in, in the hierarchy. It's possible. I mean, he was averaging three blocks a game as a starter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What does he add? I think he's at 1.1 of like in his minutes, I think. Let me see. Yeah, he's and at 1.1, 1. 1, but it's gone down. That's he was limited at, minutes. Though. Yeah, he was at 1.4 for a minute. Um, right, right. Yeah, I mean. But, like, the Wolves have started how many different guys at the four this year? Vanderbilt, McDaniels, Hernan Gomez. Layman's uh, a four, Layman. Right? Um, you, you know, I mean, it's a mess there. But, um, yeah. Yeah, this brings me to a thing that I – thought of when I was reading the the Woj article about the Chris Finch hiring and they said I think he was sort of broadly explaining why they they thought they needed to go outside the organization Um, and the line says Rosas didn't want to spend the season with an interim coach sources said instead wishing to maximize the development of a veteran core around all-star center Carl Anthony Towns Malik Beasley number one overall pick Anthony Edwards and D'Angelo Russell was out after knee surgery where so is this, this veteran, veteran core yeah, yeah, veteran like, core does not exist this it, is okay. a lie our, our <laughs> veterans on the t-wolves include ricky rubio age 30 
and Ed, Ed Davis, age 31. He's not going to play very much when it matters. That, like. that is it. They're the only two guys over 25. And, and they're, they're not part of the core 27. because they weren't even there last year. <laughs> I know, I know. It's not a core. It's not, it's barely a veteran existence or presence. Like it's. This is just PR spin from Woj. Like this is yeah. all that is. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, yeah. Um, it'll be interesting to see what they do. I can't tell. Um, I'd love to see some changes there. I would love to see two friends playing basketball in a way that's both fun and maybe they win some games. I would love to see that dynamic happen on the court. This is never going to happen, but are the, <laughs> should, the, should the Warriors be like, uh, hey, you want you want your picks back and you want to – <laughs> you want James, James Wiseman? Uh, we'll take Towns. Yeah. Get yeah. all your picks back. <laughs> um, they should offer. They might take it right now. Um, okay. One of the other things in the NBA news this week, um, it's been all over the place. It's been baffling to a lot of people. Uh, NBA Top Shot. It's all over Twitter. It's all over Reddit. Um, it's probably other uh, on other um, platforms that I'm unaware of. If you don't know what NBA Top Shot is, it's they're basically collectible video highlights. It's a blockchain-based cryptocurrency. It's um, part of its 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 juice right now is it's flowing on scarcity. Uh, they, you know, they release these in drops. It's it's hard to get a piece of these drops. Uh, and they're, so they're dropping in packs. You can get a common pack for nine bucks, a rare pack for 22 and a legendary pack for 23. They have the common just has common shots, nine common ones. The rare one is the nine commons plus one rare. And then the legendary, I want to say, is three commons, three rares, and then one of a, I guess, legendary uh, category. Um, as you move up the expense rate there, um, you there are fewer times you can play or, ra or rather share these entities. Uh, there's a certain number of, of um, of issues of each piece, as well as a certain number of um, times they can be sort of sold as reproductions. Um, have you guys been following this thing? There was a Zion that went for 250 um, a while ago. There's some other, you know, pretty small plays that are going for a fair amount of money. Um, kind of fascinating and weird. I think it's happening for a couple of reasons. One, a pretty good user interface, interface rather, and two, um, boredom in the pandemic. Um, I think that's what's driving this. What do you guys think? Well, I mean, we should just specify in case people who are listening don't know what figures are actually being tossed around out there when we're, when we're saying 250 for a zion reel oh. we're talking 250k <laughs> 250,000 for a video clip of a single play a single shot yeah i mean they're they're effectively sports cards though i mean they're collectible they're items people cards. people yeah. are people um, collect them, accumulate them, you know, for the same reasons and in the same way as they would um, 
you know, collectors cards, they want yeah. to hold them and have them, but they also want the value potentially that they could then sell them later. And the value is going up at an unsustainable rate. It might be suggested those common packs, they drop for nine bucks. There are nine common plays in a common pack. You can currently resell a single common card play top shot top shot that's what we're called you can resell a single common top shot for 20 to 30 bucks right now yeah if you had access to the drop i mean part of this is being you know did you get a piece of it or didn't you but if you did the 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 rate that the value is going up is staggeringly high it will almost certainly crash when and how yet to be determined (laughs) <laughs> um okay so there's a lot there's a lot to go off of here one Michael is just betting against he's betting against the nba he's betting against dapper labs he's betting against the uh, whoever well, calling calling a crash doesn't necessarily mean that you think that it's going to fail you just think there's a bubble it's going to burst and it's going to probably have to then correct and rebuild out of it fair fair and i guess the other thing i want to well first of all, i just want to get uh kyle's thoughts on the idea that tyler heroes uh, iconic, actually legendary, according to NBA Top Shot's description of the moment. His snarl in the NBA Finals is going for $27,500 right now. I mean, I don't know why you'd want it in your possession or want to look at it, uh, <laughs> but I can see it. You know, it, it, it's a big moment. I mean, it was so, it was, it made such an impression on me and I had <laughs> such a viscerally bad reaction about it that, uh, yeah, I had some things to say. Um, I had some things to say more in private than in public. It's not, I'm not out there, you know, tweeting or, or, you know, making the rounds about this one, but honestly, I didn't think it looked nearly as cool as what he thought it did when he was doing it or what the cameras seemed to think that it was when they were, you know, capturing it or what the, you know, the video people had when they were continually replaying it throughout those next, you know, (laughs) how many games were left after that snarl? I don't even know, but two two games or so that they kept replaying it. And I was just like, I don't know, they're losing. I mean, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't look good in retrospect. This is this might have been like the actual one of the games they actually won in the finals, but this is what I no I'll that say. one was. It was definitely a game that they won, but I just mean that they ended up losing thereafter. And of course, this is what I would say for Tyler Hero. He's an extremely confident dude, and that's probably a large part of the reason why he's in the NBA. Because I think if I was a if I was a rookie in the NBA finals playing against LeBron James, I do not think I would be snarling or co- commanding that kind of attention and putting myself. Also, he's he's got to be a super online person. He's got to know that this is like potential for meme. Like this is meme fodder. Like so, I don't know, man. Just well, you almost wonder. You almost wonder. Did he practice? Did he sit in front of the mirror practicing the snarl, making sure that he got it to look just the way he needed it to? (laughs) I think it just happened just for the aggregators. I think it happened in the moment. This was his like. uh, This is yeah. Of course, it happens in the moment, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he didn't prep for it. That's fair. That's fair. Um, yeah. So, I mean, NBA Top Shot, I've gotten really intrigued by this, not in, uh, intrigued enough to put any money in it. Um, uh, Cause yeah, I like money and not, well, I like my money and not to just lose it gambling, which is, I feels like essentially what this is. Um, but it, it's cool. And, and I think it's gamified, it's gamified uh, card trading, you know, virtual 
uh, playing cards. I think it's I think it's a smart idea. The NBA is obviously like they have licensing agreements for it. Uh, the NBA Players Association, I think, is getting some amount of money from it. So the NBA is getting sales from it and Dapper Labs is getting money from um, secondary trading within the blockchain system. So it, that might make you think that it, it might last given that like people who tend to make a lot of money will be making a lot of money off of it. I predict it's not really going to go anywhere. I mean, like I was saying, even even if like Ethereum faces some troubles, there are all kinds of other blockchains that are coming out and it seems to have institutional support from the NBA. The NBA is really behind the idea of getting into digital collectibles and um, whether it's this exact Dapper Labs version or if it's a, another version by Dapper Labs again or by another company, I think this kind of collectible is here to stay. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. Like if the NBA is kind of putting its man hours and, and considerable money behind something, it's probably going to be here to stay. That doesn't always go well, but they tend to make money on the things that they put their interest in. Um, and this is like a broader thing that I wanted to say. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. I don't really watch other sports as much as I used to. I watch the the Major League Baseball playoffs when they come around because, you know, playoff baseball is just amazing. Uh, but I don't really watch the NFL or anything anymore. But it just feels like the NBA is always in, like, the dead center, like the heart of, like, America's Americanness or culture's cultureness. Like, it just feels like the NBA is like very deeply rooted in all the current happenings in a way that other leagues aren't, whether it's like cryptocurrency, whether it's the Black Lives Matter movement, whether it's like free agency and higher contracts, you know, whatever it is, it just, whether it's like the idea of fashion um, and the ways in which like, uh, we police a certain people's fashions and not other people's fashion. Like, I don't know, somehow the NBA just just always seems to be involved and smack dab in the center of things. And that's why, like, I, I just love this league. Um, and, like, it's fun to cover. I, there just seems to be so many more entry points to into the NBA than there are in, in other sports. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing I wanted to talk about today um, if we can transition, um, sure. I wanted to ask you a question. Mm -hmm. So over the last five games, who would you say is the hottest team in the NBA? Oh, over the last, the wizards, I guess the wizards. <laughs> that, I, so I was looking over the, the two, the, the, the wizards and the nets and the, the nets last five wins are better than the, the, the wizards. Um, yeah. and the nets have actually won six straight, but I felt like most people were going to say the nets, you know, they're all over the nationally televised games. Of course you live in the same region I do. And so mm -hmm. you're, you know, really um, aware of what's going on with the wizard right now, but they're looking good. And, uh, you know, they've won five straight. They they're actually, um, I thought if I can call it up here, they're either, um, one loss out or they're tied they're only one loss out of the eighth spot right now mm -hmm. yeah that's correct you know um, they haven't played quite as many games because of all the covid games that they missed um so they've got a little bit to catch up um but um but yeah they're they're they've gotten themselves kind of into the conversation um as a team you know that's now healthy again and with a lot of time left in the season could potentially, you know, um, make a little noise. 
Yeah, I mean, this related this relates to something that I was thinking about talking about. Just like the East, uh, things are obviously still bunched up. Certainly, pretty much everyone after the top three teams have pretty similar records. But um, that even in that bunched upness, uh, things look more normal now. The 76ers are in first place, but the Nets are right behind them. And I think most people, or I certainly did, and I think a fair amount of people expect the Nets to take over the number one seed uh, this year, especially as the Bucks kind of play with play with more things and try to figure things out, integrate new players, play with new defense defensive schemes. And then after that, you know, you got 76ers, Nets, Bucks, and then you've got Pacers, Raptors, Celtics. Those are all teams you would expect to be in the mix for the four, fifth, and sixth spots. And then the only surprises are really like after that, seven, eight, nine right now are teams that we maybe didn't expect to be in the playoff hunt. But, you know, with, with 10 seeds now being in the playoff hunt, you you wouldn't be totally surprised if they were down there at the bottom. But I would expect the Heat to move up now that Jimmy Butler is back. I, I think the Heat are better than the Hornets and the Bulls and the Knicks. Um, I think that's, yeah, I, I think for sure they are. They might not be better than anybody else in the East this year, but I think they're better than those three teams. Is there any scenario in your mind where the Sixers hang on and end up with the best record in the East at the end of the season? It seems like it's just not going to be possible because it just seems like Embiid is going to have to play so many games and he's going to have to play so well. Um, and they're already dealing with like some COVID stuff like Seth Curry. I think, I think he's played well on the whole on the year, but he's had some trouble, like had to sit out games and like in his recovery. of That was COVID. part of what I was going to say is um, I think that he, losing him was a bigger deal than what we may have expected when he first went out. Um, but you can basically trace the you know decline in their season to the moment when he went out. And, um, and of course he hasn't quite played the same since going out. Um, but I think we have to have some expectation that he will get back up to speed. Um, and it, it made me, um, at least, you know, want to, you know, I'm a Sixers fan. So basically saying, I want to be optimistic that they could hold on to the one seed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think they could, if they pick up a point guard, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I still think that's a big problem there. No? Yeah, they need another perimeter creator uh, for sure. That's that's going to be their Achilles heel. And I, I should watch more Sixers games so that I can have more intelligent things to say about uh, about Ben Simmons because I feel like I don't totally – like I know the story of Ben Simmons, but I don't, I don't understand it with the degree of nuance that I'd like in order to say just – in order to come on here and just be like flat out, they can't win anything if Ben Simmons is their best primary creator, you know? I just wonder if on Valentine's Day, um, Doc Rivers uh, decided to give Ben Simmons, um, you know, a a gesture uh, um, uh, because from Valentine's Day on, Ben Simmons has scored 42 points and 28 points. um, (laughs) And he missed a couple of games. Um, But um, I, you know, being a little facetious, but I say it because I don't know, look at when he, when he scored 42 points, um, I saw in that, that was against the jazz. I saw a different kind of aggressiveness from him. And I wondered if, if someone talked to him and if, if it was just made clear that he's like, Ben, you've got to be more of a scorer. If we're going to go anywhere, you have got to be more of a scorer and um, could just have been circumstantial, but it just seems like the, the level of aggressiveness over the last two games and now even kind of, you know, into the start of this next one um, is notable. 
it, I, I believe that somebody did speak with him and I wish uh, that I had enough time to do enough prep to tell you who that is, but I remember reading it. I want to say it was something like Tobias Harris sat down with Ben Simmons and like they had a chat and they talked about stuff and then Simmons was more aggressive. So if he can keep that up, you know, that very much changes them and as much as Curry's shooting changes them or Embiid's efficiency changes them. Um, I, I think there's a lot of hope there. Yeah, for sure. And um, we, we sort of were talking about the Nets and the top of the East, and we had a conversation, I think, last week that, that didn't wind up on the pod about Trey Young and which players we might take over Trey Young. And Zach Levine was just named to the All-Star game while Trey Young was not, which is obviously not definitive of anything. Um, but, you know, Seth Partnow in his analytics look around to today was talking about players who sort of just stand uh, 35 plus feet from the basket and aren't involved in the action when they don't have the ball. And Luka Doncic and Trey Young are tops on that list. Um, Luka Doncic uh, in percentage of time above the hash mark, 63.6%. Trey Young, 59.6%. Percentage of time, 35 plus feet from the baseline, 36.7% from Luka Doncic, 33.7% from Trey Young. And of note, uh, Harden would have been at 47% a year ago, um, more than 35 feet from the baseline. And he's down this year to 30.5%. So he is playing significantly differently. Um, you know, we had, we saw reports of Kyrie saying, Hey, James Harden, you be the point guard. I'll be the shooting guard. Uh, yeah, duh. We know, uh, that was already, <laughs> that was already happening Kyrie, but like, Good for him. Good for him that he came to that conclusion and they talked it out as teammates and they made it work. Um, and yeah, like I think Kyle attacked me for this before, but like <laughs> in the in the on the NBA Internet, everyone just everyone is like this loving the Nets failing or struggling. So I, I find myself sort of rooting for them. And and yeah, like I'm not going to apologize necessarily, but like. Harden is playing differently. We've I've ranted about it before on this pod and he's playing differently. Um, yeah. So yeah. I want to give him credit for playing differently. I uh, think the way I messaged it to you over the weekend was that he was playing like a champion um, there. Like it was a really notable sequence at the end of um, was it uh, what was the game that, um, you know, I, it was the Clippers I'm, I'm not, game. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It was because yeah, it was a, it was a very close Clippers game, um, and he he oh shoot, I'm just gonna have to give that up here. Um, the, but like, I sent you a message about it, and it was there the um, the opposing team hit a, a really important three pointer, and you just you felt like given what you knew about Harden before that he was going to like come down and probably just kind of like jack up a, you know, a, a, you know, a compensatory shot and, um, and it might just unravel them. And he didn't, um, he drew the defense. He, he waited um, and he kicked it out to Jeff green. Jeff green nails the shot. He goes back down, plays really great defense um he takes it up the next time he again waits until you know he draws the defense and then he drops it down low and they get a dunk 
Um, and it was just like over and over again, he was making the right plays. He was playing tough defense. He was just everywhere. Um, and, you know, I had the same reaction that you did, Jalen. Yeah. yeah. Well, the other thing here, I, uh, I might have this number wrong. I think Harden, Kyrie, and KD have only played five games together still. Like, you, you know, for all the haters hating on the Nets, like, they've only played five games together yet. Like, we don't even know what this team is going to look like quite. And um, they're second in the East. <laughs> and they're second in the East, and they have a hole at the five. And, you know, like, I don't think they get worse from here. Like, I would be afraid if I were some of these other teams. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Nets, the Nets are going to be good. And like, you know, I would be, I would be pleasantly surprised and happy for all parties involved if they figured it out, if they made the necessary sacrifices and if it came together and it worked. And this is the thing, like Anthony Davis is dealing with Achilles soreness um, and Achilles tendinopathy, I think. Right. Like that doesn't sound great, obviously, after we've just seen <laughs> Kevin Durant tear his Achilles it in the finals. <laughs> yeah. Um, so like I mean, everyone assumes okay, the Nets might get to the finals, but they're gonna get slapped around by the Lakers. But if Anthony Davis is hobbled, that just might not be the case anymore. And all of a sudden the the road to the championship or the ability to win a championship this year might be, you know, it just might be wide open. I mean, I, I see AD sitting for at least a few more weeks, given the condition uh, that he's in, if he's going to be at all healthy when we get to the end of the season. Like if, if, if that's the issue, he simply cannot play for a while before that is taken care of. Um, and yeah, that's going to be a really big issue there. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's um, I, yeah, I the have one... big worries. Yeah, and those injuries can linger. Um, yeah, you know, I'm I'm root, I'm rooting for LeBron as I often do, um, and I, and I'll say that the one one cause for optimism is just that they have time. Um, yep. You know, I yep. think that we might even they have still time. Be, they have cushion. They have a big lead. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's, it's yeah. also just like we we kind of sometimes are like this season feel like oh it's February. Gosh, we're getting close, but we're <laughs> right. not, but we're not <laughs> right. that close. We're not. Yet. Yeah, because <laughs> the season started late. We haven't even had the All Star break yet. Um, there, there's a little bit of time here, you know, and there's enough time even for him to get a good amount of rest to come back feeling good and to be able to ramp up slowly. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's true. A couple of times I've forgotten how few games have actually been played this season, just because we are deep into February. Like things have often are, you know, very clear right now. Whereas with this season, it's just becoming clear. Like, you know, it's just beginning to shake out who the real contenders are, who the, who isn't. Um, so that's, yeah, it's been fascinating with this different uh, schedule we're on uh, with all of the NBA stuff. Did you guys hit the rest of it while I was having my technical, technical difficulties? Yeah, I think I, I've talked enough for this episode. <laughs> I feel like I've been talking the entire time. I guess uh, the only thing, the only other thing I was going to say is that like, uh, yeah, Trey Young is a, a player who fascinates me. Uh, the conversation around him fascinates me. And it, there's sort of a weird thing happening where, like, there are all these, like, bad signs, right, where he sort of went uh, – 
took like a couple game protest for John Collins calling him out in the film session. And he was just like right. really passive. Um, and there's obviously some tension there with John Collins and they're not sure if they're going to resign him. There's rumors that the Hawks would be willing to trade him if they, for the right price. But then the reality is that Trey young is pretty much better across the board this year um, than he was last year when everyone was, um, you know, you much more singing his praises um, because he was surrounded by a lot less talent. Um, You know, he's not scoring as well. He's 26 points as opposed to 29, but he's taking fewer shots. He's shooting the same field goal percentage. He's shooting a higher true shooting percentage. His usage rate is lower. Um, You know, like, so what's the negative take? I mean, I think the negative take is that like, he deactivates off the ball like yeah that is a that is a very real uh complaint and he takes deep threes but i think the people think the deep threes come out of arrogance but i think the deep threes are that like maybe when he was younger he was concerned about getting his shot blocked um because yeah. he has a little bit of a low release and that's kind sure. of continued into the pros um and again this is from seth Partnow's article like he's shooting 24 percent from 26 plus feet on catch and shoot three-pointers um but he likes to do that we talked about this with um with Andrew Kelly when he was on the pod he likes to spot up from a couple feet from behind the line you know he feels more comfortable doing that getting a shot off and then I think attacking the closeout as well but like I don't know there's got to be some sort of middle ground where he either shoots better on those shots or he gets a little bit closer and still can find some comfort level there because you know he just can't deactivate off the ball and he needs to be more of a threat without the ball you know, yeah. just, you know, compare him to someone like Malcolm Brogdon, who's shooting 41.5% on those same shots, or even ironically, Tyrese Maxey is shooting 40% on only 15 attempts, but on those same shots. Um, so it's interesting, like, you know, you see the guys who like to post to spot up from way behind the line and their efficiency on it. Oh, and and just the, the last one, Damian Lillard shooting uh, 51.9% on those shots. <laughs> That's incredible. It's it's um, and I think the other thing to to keep in mind too, even with that twenty five percent from there, there's something that happens that somebody like Trey Young spotting up there warps the defense to some extent too, and so we have to figure in a little big there. Um, yeah, it does. But he likes to he likes to like catch and then like you know go back into a pick and roll or like kind of restart, you know, rather than like, you know, like Dirk is someone who like, I don't know if he pioneered this. A lot of players do this, but I remember Dirk being famous for it. I remember like a Zach Lowe article, I think when I was in college about it, where like, as the ball is coming towards you, you sprint toward the ball while it's in the air. So you catch the ball on the move and you're like, maybe even with the guy or even a step like past uh, just a shoulder past them by the time you catch the ball and put it on the floor. Trey Young very, 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 very rarely does that. And I think, I mean, his size is a part, probably the reason why he doesn't do that, but still, you know, there's, there's, he's certainly like, there's a balance there that I think he's working to figure out, I think is, representative in the lower usage percentage uh, the fewer threes all those sorts of things I think he's moving in the right direction and you know I don't know if it ultimately will mean anything for like the team's title odds but like I think he's moving in the right direction hopefully if we're patient you know he'll get there and he'll turn into a player who is less dominant of the ball but is also like impacting the team at a high level 
Right. And I, I, I love that observation there. When I think of the guys who do that well, like I can see Jason Tatum doing that, catching the ball as it's still coming, you know, moving toward the ball as it's being passed to him and the whole play starting there. If you go back, um, we I know you've been reading the Ross Gay book, uh, Beholding, book-length book on Dr. J and a lot of other things. Um, but in the description there, you get the same thing. It's exactly what Dr. J does in that play. Landsberger's coming out. Dr. J's meeting the pass coming in. Like that play for Landsberger's over at that point. Um, but yeah, you see guys doing it with physicality and athleticism. Does a guy like Trey Young really get that in his bag of tricks? Yeah, that's the question. That's the question. I mean, I think there. I think he can still do it. I think there's yeah. a way. Yeah. All right, uh, Kyle. Last word. I'm good. Kyle's good. I'm good. We are turning off the phantom power. Cheers.